The day has arrived. As I speak, men are at spring training camps in Florida and Arizona. Soon we'll have the beginning of the WBC. And shortly after it ends, opening day. Welcome to In the Bullpen with Mark Dewey, sponsored by Developing Contenders Ministries. You're listening to the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Thank you for joining us. And look who's coming up. High fly ball into right field. She is gone! This is the day we have been waiting for since the end of the World Series. Granted, professional baseball was played throughout the winter. College baseball has begun. But today, pitchers and catchers are reporting to spring training. It is this day we've been anticipating. We're about three weeks away from the beginning of the World Baseball Classic and about a month and a half away from opening day in Major League Baseball and a few days after that, Minor League Baseball. We had the event last night in Glendale when we found out that Derek Jeter will be joining Fox in studio this year. And then something happened after that, but I can't remember what it was. But before that, on Thursday, the rosters for each of the 20 teams that will be participating in the World Baseball Classic were announced. I want to touch on those a little bit here in a moment, but first, a few reminders, or maybe for some, some information you did not know. The last World Baseball Classic was played in 2017, won by Team USA. It's typically, or the pattern has been, to play every four years. But due to our response and reaction to COVID, we have not had one since 2017. This year, we will have the largest field ever for a World Baseball Classic. There will be 20 teams. Three teams are in it for the first time ever. Great Britain, the Czech Republic, and Nicaragua. In this tournament, there are four pools, five teams in each pool. Play begins on March 8th. For the first time, Cuba is going to allow Major League Baseball players to participate for their country in the WBC. Future Hall of Famer, I think so, and I think most people do, future Hall of Famer Yadier Molina is going to manage Team Puerto Rico, and Mark DeRosa, who was a member as a player of Team USA in 2009, is going to be managing the team this year. DeRosa works for the MLB Network, and recently he was interviewed by them about his role. Let's welcome in our friend and team manager, Mark DeRosa. Dero, I got to ask you, what has this transition been like from a player who's on the roster in 2009 to you are the boss now? You are the man in charge. Any level of stress? You know what? The level of stress is making sure the players have an experience and come in and it's a seamless three and a half weeks for them. That's my stress. The day to day. I can't wait till the games start. But I think for me, Sierra, that's the biggest thing I'm learning kind of being the manager is when you ask a bunch of people different opinions, you get different opinions and it just confuses you a little bit more. So what do you stand for? What do you believe in? and kind of putting your foot down and having to make some decisions. So that's kind of where, where I've, I've grown in this two, three-month process. Now, that was just the first few, what, 50 or so seconds of that interview. It went on for quite some time. 
I do not know Mark DeRosa, but I liked a lot of the things he said in that interview. The clip you heard, I especially liked him talking about asking yourself some questions. What do you stand for? What do you believe in? And then putting your foot down and making decisions. I love that. I wish more Christians had that approach to things. Later on in the interview, he made clear his goal. It is quite simply, as you would expect, for Team USA to win it all, to defend their championship and win back-to-back WBCs. Team USA is in Pool C. They will play in that pool their games in Phoenix. Those games will begin March 11th. I pick Team USA to win that pool. They're going to be led by guys like Clayton Kershaw, Devin Williams, Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, and also somebody else. And this is a great story that continues. That is Daniel Bard and his comeback and all that's happened over the last few years, and he is also on this team. I mentioned that Cuba, for the first time, has allowed Major League Baseball players to play for their country. And in this year's World Baseball Classic, they chose two. Yoan Mancata and his Chicago White Sox teammate. Luis Robbins. They better watch out. Monster. This ball is absolutely annihilated. This is a rocket. That gives you some idea of what kind of power this guy has. Robert is back. He is at the wall. He leaps. He makes the catch. Stolen base is definitely a part of their game. What a grab by Luis Robert. That is a grand swing for Luis Robert. And he made that baseball pay. I think he's at the upper echelon of talent. Robert, Mancata, and Team Cuba are in Pool A. They play in Taiwan, first games, March 8th. And I think that Cuba is the favorite in that pool. Pool B is going to be played in Tokyo, Japan. They will begin playing March 9th. Coming out of this pool, I pick Japan. Among others, they feature Yu Darvish, who just signed a contract extension with the San Diego Padres just this past week. Six years, $108 million. And then also, of course, Shohei Otani, who will, sometime in the next year, sign the largest contract in sports history. Pool Pool D, in my opinion, is the toughest. They have Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, and Venezuela in that pool. Those games will be in Miami, and they begin March 11th. My pick in this pool is the Dominican Republic. In this tournament, we will see 67 Major League Baseball All-Stars and eight former MVPs. We also get to see top prospects. But here's another thing that's so great about the World Baseball Classic. We get to see unknown minor league players, at least unknown to the vast majority of fans. People like Matt Hardy and Michele Vassilotti. Now, what we won't be seeing in the WBC, that we will be seeing from the first game of spring training throughout the 2023 baseball season, are the new rule changes. So as I said, they'll be in place for all the spring training games and, of course, in season, but they will not be in play for the games in the World Baseball Classic, which, of course, means that those players, especially those that play to the end of the Classic, have less time to get used to those prior to the start of opening day or the start of the season, which is opening day. Now, these rule changes, we're told, have been made with the intent of making the game better. I have my views and concerns. I'll tell you a little bit about them here in a moment. But first, I want you to listen to a portion of the press conference that was held about these rule changes. Unfortunately, uh, as you know, and, and, and as you can see here on this slide, the game on the field has been evolving for decades. 
in, in a way that has taken us away from action, uh, taken us away from contact, taken us away from a faster pace. And this is no fault uh, of the players whatsoever. In fact, now, most of these trends have been driven simply by modernization, uh, by data, and by front office optimizations. Uh, but the game has evolved in a way that nobody would have chosen if we were sitting down 25 years ago uh, to chart a path towards the best version of baseball. So no one would have asked for the league to hit closer to 240 than to 265. You know, nobody would have asked for a league strikeout rate higher than Bob Gibson's career strikeout rate. Nobody would have asked for fans to have to wait more than four minutes for balls to be put into play. Uh, nobody would have asked for generational lows in, in stolen bases, triples, and doubles, fans' favorite place. Uh, so in many ways, the effort to move closer to the best version of baseball is also an effort to restore the game to previous eras and to more traditional norms that featured more contact, more action, faster pace, and greater entertainment value. Uh, that was Theo Epstein the man who led both the Red Sox and Cubs to World Series championships after a very long drought, and he now works in the commissioner's office. I found it interesting in listening to his comments about talking him talking about how and why the game has moved away from action and that it is really because of the trends driven by data or data. And he says no one would have asked for these changes 25 years ago. And the whole goal, he said, of these new rules is intended to restore the game to previous eras and norms. The bottom line is, as he said, what we're looking for with these new rules is more action. More action is needed in the game of baseball. Now, the chart he referenced there, and he spoke a lot about, was up on the screen. It compared 1997 to 2022. Between those two years, and again, that's a 25-year period of time, the average game times increased the average runs per games went down, as did batting average, doubles, triples, and stolen base attempts. What went up during that time were strikeouts and home runs. So here are the rule changes. There are three, fundamentally. There's kind of three and a half, if you will. The first one, which contains the half, the first one is the pitch clock. There's going to be 30 seconds between batters. So a batter flies out to left field, the clock starts, the next batter has got to be ready to go, in 30 seconds. There will be 15 seconds between pitches if nobody is on base, 20 seconds between pitches with runners on. Now here's kind of the half. It's kind of coupled with the pitch clock. Pitchers will be limited to two step-offs and or pick-offs per plate appearance with a runner on first. Now, so if I step off, if I'm holding the runner, I step off, and then I come to my set and I throw over, I cannot step off or throw over again unless it results in an out. If it doesn't result in an out, it's a balk and the runner or runners advance. Now the batter's portion of this pitch clock is this. The batter needs to be in the box and ready to go at the eight second mark. And the goal of all of this is to increase the pace of play and decrease time of games. My thoughts about this are these. I think it's going to work. I think it's going to increase pace of play. I think that's pretty much unavoidable. And it will almost certainly decrease the time of games. Both of those things, I believe, are good things, especially the pace of play. I think it's especially good for pitchers, generally, almost as a rule, to work quickly. And I think it's better for the game of baseball. More balls in play, defense is more active, all of those things. 
The problem I have is the means to the end. I think the end is going to be good. The outcome, the goal is going to be met. I don't like the pitch clock. The second rule change has to do with shift restrictions. There must be a minimum of four players on the infield, and there must be two completely on either side of second base. And you can't have a situation like a shortstop who is on the left side of second base barely, and then as the ball is being delivered, he can run across to the right side of second base. That can't happen. The goal of this is to increase batting average of balls put in play and to allow the infielders to display their athleticism more. Again, not a fan of the restrictions per se. I'm not as against them as I as, as I am the pitch clock, but I do think this too will achieve its desired goal. I think batting average of balls in play should go up, and I think we will play, see some plays being made that will be fabulous to watch that we would not have seen in a shift situation. The third rule, bigger bases. They were 15 inches square up until now. This year they will be 18 inches square which means that the distance from home to first and from third to home will be three inches less, and the distance between first and second or second and third will be four and a half inches less. The stated goal of this, increased safety and also an increase in stolen base attempts. We'll see. I don't really have much thought about this. We'll see what happens. Now, I will say this. All of these rules have been tested in minor league baseball and in the Atlantic League, one of the uh, independent leagues. Tested in over 8,000 games. And in those 8,000 games, the results they're hoping to see at the major league level, they saw at the minor league level. We obviously have to see if that's going to cross over. But it's likely that it will. Now, there's one thing I would like to add to this. You can't call it a rule change, and really it has nothing to do with the speed of the game or even what takes place during the game. It's, it's something that I have an idea about regarding pregame. And I cannot in any way uh, say that my thought is original because it was really prompted by what happened at the Grammys last week. This is what I would like to see. I would like to see Major League Baseball encourage, they can't demand it, but encourage, strongly encourage all three organ- 30, excuse me, 30 organizations, so not only the Major League level, but throughout their organization, to pick a day in July or August and have it be a day, a day game in July or August, so it's the hottest time of the year typically and the hottest time of the day, and I want a pregame ceremony for the first pitch. And so what I want to have happen is somebody dressed up playing the role of Satan to go out to throw the first pitch. And as he does, there are scantily dressed women fawning all over him as he is coming up on the mound. Then once he takes the rubber, and he probably wouldn't throw from the rubber, but once he gets to where he's ready to throw, they can back off a little bit and just, you know, kind of ogle at him. But then before he throws the first pitch, I want both dugouts to empty out and to come to the first and third baseline and have all the players and coaches bow in obeisance to this Satan figure. Now, of course, I'm not serious, but I am very curious, curious of this. If that happened, How many professing Christians would participate in that event? And they would do so because they wouldn't want to offend anybody. Or they they would want to show that they are inclusive. Or that they would say it is a way to demonstrate love and to witness to the lost. I seriously have that question. I'm very curious 
I don't think it'll ever happen, but if it did, I'm very, very curious. Now, there is no doubt that Christians have the responsibility to love others. But the question is, what does that look like? What does it mean to love? Let's hear from a man who was a faithful student and teacher of God's Word for decades. You can make a moral judgment on this neighbor. You can say to this person, if he doesn't repent, you'll surely perish. You're under the wrath of God now. Let me try to explain that to you. I know you don't like it, but let me try to show you it's true. Jesus Christ died and he offers salvation to you. If you'll accept it, you'll live forever. You may antagonize that person by saying those things. You may make him your enemy because you tell him the truth, but that's a loving thing to do. You don't approve of his malbehavior, and you don't refrain from telling him a truth which can save just because he would be offended by it, but you do definitely work for his good in the kindest possible way, offending him as little as you possibly can and doing him real good even when he doesn't actually realize it. Dr. Gershner's exhortation is much needed in our day because like Major League Baseball, the church has, over the last 25 years, moved away from action. And there are many reasons, but none of them are good. We need to be more active, active standing for the crown rights of Christ. Now, somebody might argue with me, well, wait a second, wait a second. Worshiping Satan is a far cry from the other things that have taken place in and around the game of baseball. We need to understand something. We are called to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are told we do so using the divinely powerful weapons of our warfare for the destruction of fortresses, to destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God is from the pit of hell. It's not only a matter of overt Satan worship, like what took place at the Grammys, but anything and everything contrary to God's word and obedience to King Jesus. Now, I've been reading a book that I just concluded this past week from a man named Pierre Cortiol. It's titled, A New Day of Small Beginnings. Listen to what he writes in this book. Without God, there would be no true or false, no good or evil. And then parenthetically, he says, as Dostoevsky writes in the Brothers Karamazov, if God does not exist, then everything is permissible. The point of the forbidden tree in the garden was to make it clear that man could learn the knowledge of good and evil from God and from him alone. Otherwise stated, the word of God is the sole source of morals and law. It was at the fall that another source of morals and law was seductively suggested to man, a pretended source alongside of and opposed to the one true source. We know from the word of God that the instigation of this other source, this source mirage, was Satan, who was then and is always behind the alluring temptation that aims to draw men from God, away from God, as the source and standard of all truth. The fall happened because man in Adam rebelled, listening to the seducer and preferring an illusory source to the one true source. As Christians, we cannot encourage nor condone such things regardless of the form they take. But more than that, 
we must not remain silent. More action is needed. But that's a conversation for another day. Join us next time for In the Bullpen on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Thank you for listening.